So in chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but the will of God. So this phrase right away gets us with the therefore takes us back to what Christ has done for us. And therefore, since Christ suffered for us, think about that. You can suffer for a lot of things. You can suffer for your own ineptitude. You can suffer wrongly because people just have it against you because of your gender or your ethnicity. There's a lot of things that you can suffer in life for. You can suffer in a sense that people would consider random through disease or illness. Suffering is to be something that's unpleasant. Given a choice, we're not going to choose suffering. I don't wake up and say, Lord, I'd just love to suffer today, and nor do you. That's not the normal way. Like me, I like, when my sports teams are playing, I like them to win big. I don't like close games. I like to win big. You know, I enjoy winning big. I don't like comebacks. You know, and, and that's how I'm with life. I like life going well. I like the carpooling by LAX when it's moving as opposed to being in the right lane when it's not moving. Okay, like that's kind of how we are. And we're wired that way and it's understandable. And eternity is going to be that way, but time, space, and matter is not that way for anybody on the planet and particularly not for followers of Christ because we do face opposition for our faith and who we represent and what we stand for. But it's important to realize that Jesus chose suffering for us. He came into this world to die for our sins. That's the purpose of his coming. He always does those things that please the Father. And we see in the Gospel of Luke, his face is set like flint to go to Jerusalem. And the purpose of his coming was to die for our sins. He had to live the perfect sinless life to be this acceptable substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. But the real purpose, you know, we talk about core values, mission statements, philosophy of what we do. The purpose, if you're going to say, what was the core value? What was the absolute purpose in God the Father sending his son into the world? What was the absolute purpose that Jesus Christ came out of eternity, the one by whom are all things and for whom are all things? What really was the purpose of his coming? Great teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, to inspire humanity, nice phrases about doing good for others, do to others as you'd have them do for you, treat others as you want to be respected. I actually shared that with the USA Serve team today. All kinds of scripture, just whether people know it's scripture or not, right? But is that the purpose of his coming? So I can say, like, hey, do for others what you want them to do for you. That doesn't really save anybody. That'll give you a better life, by the way, in the universal principles of God and his universe. That doesn't save anybody. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to fulfill the scriptures that said he would suffer and die on the cross according to the scriptures, and he'd rise again on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the purpose of his coming. There in the manger in Bethlehem, the baby Jesus came into this world, and the angels declared, you know, in their glory to the shepherds to go see him, to see this baby. He came for one purpose, to suffer for us. All that he went through is for us. It's for me. It's for you. He died once for all. That we could have a relationship with the Father through his substitutionary death. He suffered for us. That phrase just, 
You could read by that in a morning devotion and go, oh, therefore, since Christ suffered for us, let us have the same mind. Wait a second. Jesus on the cross is for us. And we need to stop and reflect on that for a minute, especially with communion tonight. He suffered for us. He chose suffering for us. And like Paul said through the Holy Spirit in Romans, rarely would you choose to suffer for someone else and die for someone else, a righteous man. Most of you know that passage. Where it's like, but Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Like he, he, he died for us while we were yet enemies of God to reconcile us to the Father. And I think it's important to understand that we love him because he first loved us because he came and showed that love by suffering for us. The beatdown that Jesus took at the hands of the Jewish leaders and the Roman Empire, he did for us. We should never forget that. We never have to doubt God's love for us because he demonstrated to us on the cross through his son. We never have to say, God, do you really love me? Christ came and suffered for us. And the one that comes to him, he will by no means cast out. And when we're going through suffering, we are never alone. That's why when Paul wrote the Corinthian church, he said, the God of all comfort who comforts us that we might comfort others. And he's, Jesus, the prophet Isaiah said, is a man of sorrows. And in our sorrows, in our suffering, Jesus is made most real to us. Now, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. So in victory, you can have that sense of great achievement. Like, yeah, the Lord, you know, like he is the triumphant one. But really, it's in the suffering of human experience where we most draw near to the Lord. That's why great men and great women of God suffer so much. Because through their suffering, God teaches them his heart. You think of David when he's anointed to be king. And then there he just goes through this whole process in the Old Testament of being pursued and persecuted by Saul, his father-in-law, the king. And he wrote all those psalms that tell us to trust in the Lord, that God is good. And through all the afflictions that we draw near to the Lord. It's in afflictions that the man of sorrow is most revealed to us. And it's good to keep that in mind when it's the bad day or the difficult day. Or as the Bible says, the evil day. And we're going through hard times. And like, why are you allowing this suffering? And how could I be suffering like this? And don't you, you know, see, what you catch them with, you keep them with. That's what Pastor Chuck used to say. And if you catch them with the word of God, you'll keep people with the word of God. But if, if you doctor the word of God to catch people with the wrong diet, they're going to they're gonna seek the wrong food. And if you catch people with it's always going to be a good day, you'll never have bad days. You know, if you just believe strong enough and confess strong enough, everything will be come up roses. That is not only a false gospel, that's just ludicrous to think of that in the human experience. With common sense, how do you get to 80 years of age and not bury all kinds of people that you love and care about? It's impossible. Do you realize, I mean, if you just use common sense and logic, we're all going to step into eternity. And the days of man are 70, and yet by measure of strength, 80, Moses said in Psalm 91. So, like, just the, the sheer lunacy that you would never have a bad day or you would never be sick as a believer is ridiculous. Because sooner or later, in maybe even your 90s, if you never got a bug or something, you're in assisted living, you're going to get something. And they'll send a, an email to your adult children saying, 
the assisted living's quarantine right now because there's a stomach flu going through, and they'll keep your parent, your you know, your 90-year-old-plus parents in in a quarantine in a sense where they bring their food to them, and they'll get sick and they'll die. We die. We suffer. People we love suffer. People get cancer and they die. People will get killed by drunk drivers every day. Government op governments oppress good people and persecute them for believing differently than them. It's a human experience. So whenever we're going through suffering, we just got to come back to this simple truth. Christ suffered for us for our sins. Every sin, past, present, future, was nailed to the cross by the Father on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. It is amazing because there's only two choices with suffering in eternity. Either we receive the gift of salvation through Christ who suffered for our sins or we step into eternity and we suffer for all eternity for the consequences and the wrath of God upon our sins. The wrath of God is on sin. It's either on our sin, on Jesus on the cross, or it's on us without Jesus in eternity. It's either Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world, or the books are open and we're cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Somebody's got to suffer. Somebody's got to pay the price for sins. And Jesus Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Our bodies feel pain. You know, recently we had a congregant who's just gone through a history of stones, having stones, you know, like kidney stones, gallbladder stones. And anyone I ever talked to that, tell, that I know that's had a stone, they tell me you want to die. The pain is unbelievable. It's the worst pain imaginable. It's indescribable. Worst thing ever. The body feels that. And in talking to someone recently, they said, you know, they'll give you morphine, they'll give you this. You know, you can't kill the pain of passing a stone. Every person I ever talked to that's passed a kidney stone or gallstone, they tell me, you cannot kill that pain. No amount of morphine will kill that pain. When I had the vertigo and I was throwing up nonstop dry heaves because my calibration was off in my inner ear, and I'm in the ambulance thinking I'm dying, I'm over here at the hospital thinking I'm dying, they killed that pain. They knocked me out. I don't even remember what they gave me. My wife was there. It was a Tuesday night. Jeremy came and visited me. And then they took me in one ambulance to another hospital, the Kaiser. They put me in the, you know, the, the, what's the machine called? You know, when you get the scan. MRI. Not the CAT scan. They did that here, the MRI. Did the CAT scan here, MRI. Not the MRI, you know, the thing, the machine where you're in the tube is terrifying. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to have a panic attack. By the way, if you're going to have one, that's a good time to have one. So don't, you know? But, like, there was so much pain when I had the vertigo. I, I mean, no one wants to throw up. I was dry heaving because I couldn't stop spinning. It's like a Six Flags ride and you can't get off of it. It's like a spinny ride. It's your worst. And those of you that had vertigo, Daniel, Susan, you know what I'm talking about. You try and tell people... We suffer. The body suffers. We feel suffering. We're cut. We feel it. We got a stomach flu. We feel it. You got a stone. You feel it. You got vertigo. You feel it. You got a severe headache. You feel it. You got a toothache. You definitely feel it. You got a headache. You feel it. You got a migraine. You feel it. The flesh 
feels suffering. Christ suffered in the flesh for our sins. Don't think because he's the son of God, he doesn't feel a nail going through his hands, a spike. Or they crush his head with a crown of thorns. Don't think that hurt him any less than it hurt you. We make a crown of thorns. We jam that thing on your head. Don't think that hurts uh, any less for Jesus because he's the son of God than it hurts for you. Christ suffered for us in the flesh. He might have been sinless and lived a perfect life, but Christ suffered for us in the flesh. It's about him, who he is, and what he's done for us. We should never, ever doubt the love of God for us. Because when you think of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he went through in his earthly body, he did it to save us from our sins. He definitely suffered, and he suffered for us. It's not random. It wasn't a good day gone bad. It wasn't without design and order. That the just might bring the unjust to the Father. He bore our sins in his body. On a tree that we haven't died to sin might live to righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Christ suffered for us. So, he says, with the same mind, we do not, we no longer live for our flesh the rest of our timeline in life. Once we really understand that God is good and we're a new creation in Christ and we're born in the spirit, and Adam all sin and die, but we're born of the spirit, born again through faith in Jesus, and his spirit comes into us, that we're told in verse 2 to no longer live the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. He's empowered us by his spirit to have victory over our flesh, where we feel pain and all these things, and we're of the same mind of Christ to serve the Lord, and be faithful to the Lord, and to not live what remains of our time in the flesh for the lust of men, which Christ died for in the flesh, suffering for us, but for the will of God. So if the purpose in Jesus' coming, the macro goal, the macro purpose, the mission statement of of Jesus' coming to suffer in the flesh, to die on the cross for our sins, then here we're told that that great purpose of our life is to live for the will of God in the spirit and not to live for the flesh. That's what we're told here. Let this mind be in you, the same mind. Now, we were told last week, and we studied it, be of one mind. We talked about the unity that we already have through faith in Jesus Christ. It's established because God's not divided. Yes and no, but he's yes, yes, or no, no. But now we're told to have the same mind. So Christ died for the sins of the world in his flesh, and he suffered in the flesh. And if anyone be in Christ, we're a new creation, and our life is in Christ, and we're a race of the Spirit. So when we even have the baptisms two weeks ago at Little Corona, when we're baptizing people, that represents death to the flesh, which Christ suffered in his flesh to die for the sins of our flesh. And we're raised up, the new woman, the new man, to live in the Spirit. And we're to live for the will of God, not the flesh. And what a phrase, too, to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. I mean, days are limited. That's why Paul said to the Ephesians, the days are evil, therefore redeem the time, for the days are evil. Tick-tock, tick-tock. You know, we're on the clock. And whether we have 
few years or many years in front of us, man, the, the purpose when we wake up is to live for the will of God. What's my purpose today on July 24th? It is to live for the will of God. When I got up this morning at 6 a.m., what am I doing? I'm, 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 I'm getting up later than I wanted to, but I'm still getting up, and I got to be somewhere at 6.30. And I've got responsibilities that are, it's going to take a lot out of me physically and mentally and emotionally. Uh, it's going to be draining, and I'm going to need the mind of the Lord. But that day starts with 1 Samuel chapter 25 and Saul chasing David again, relentlessly. And I'm going to want to read that passage and let God speak to me what this means to my life. So when David grabs the jug and the spear, the spear that's been chucked at him, what is God teaching me? Because in that passage this morning is the will of God for my life. That God's going to speak to me from his word like he's going to speak to you from his word when you make time to seek his face in his word. That's what's going to happen. And he'll speak to you about the jug and the spear that's taken and restored and grace demonstrated to the Lord's anointed and not avenging ourselves. There'll be something for you there if you're me this morning or something for you there with what you're reading. But David, the man after God's heart, said, you seek the Lord in the morning, let him speak to you. Early in the morning will I rise and seek you. We're to live for the will of God. The busyness of life, it's, it's right out that front door. It's actually right there on your cell phone, right? I mean, the busyness of life begins the, mo- like the, the moment I do this and close my journal and write the last thing, life happens. And it's coming at you like this. Some days a little slower, like, oh, I got this. Some days it's like, oh, my goodness. It's like, a, it's like here, here they come. It's, it's coming in every direction. Sometimes you feel like you're in front of it. Sometimes you feel like you're on your heels and reacting to everything going on around you. But the purpose of my life and your life in Jesus Christ is that he suffered once for us in the flesh to bring us to the Father, to birth us by his Spirit, that we would no longer live for the flesh, but live for the Spirit, to be in his word, to seek his face, and to glorify him as we go forward in our day. Our purpose is to live for the will of God. That's your purpose in Jesus' name. That's why when they said Jesus teaches us to pray, how do we pray? Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It all starts with his will there being understood, submitted to, and apprehended that we could be yielded to it and what he wants to do in our life. Christ suffered once for us in the flesh that we no longer live for our flesh, but our macro purpose, our supreme goal of life is to live for the will of God not the lust of men. Now we read on in verse 3. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. See the contrast? We just say the will of unbelievers. That would be the equivalent of what he's saying here with the Gentiles, the, the godless world. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When, past tense, we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, in regards to these, they, the world, old friends, whatever, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God 
in the Spirit. So the first two verses is like, this is what we want to be. And verse 3 is the exhortation. We're not going backwards. It's like when Paul wrote the Philippians. You know, we forget those things that are behind and we press on to what lies ahead. Everything's forward with the Lord. What was it when we went through Philippians last year? Uh, forward, onward, upward. Yeah, forward, onward, upward is what we get there in Philippians. So enough of our past lifetime. Any portion of our past lifetime lived for the flesh is too much. It's lost opportunity. I, I mentioned this, and it's just one of those things that gets my attention when I read something in, in leadership that just, I go, that's really interesting. But of, of all things, it was Nick Saban from Alabama football who said that with time. It's something very interesting he said about the value of a day. Uh, the value of a day. Nick Saban said, with the, the time of a day, you're either investing your time toward what your goals are, or you're spending your time, like spending money, like savings you're wasting. Uh, you're spending your time on frivolous things that don't move toward your goal. So the greatest equity he's saying that you have is with time, are you investing it toward your purpose and goals or are you spending it like, in, like, a tr- like a trust mismanaged and wasting it on frivolity of life? So I look at that and say, well, in Jesus' name, if I'm living for the flesh or myself, I'm wasting my money. I'm taking the estate and the inheritance of time, the most valuable thing I have that the Lord's given me, and I'm wasting it. If it's not moving toward the kingdom and the eternal purposes of God's will in my life and those whose lives I'm supposed to affect. But if I'm living for the will of God and each day belongs to the Lord, then whatever's coming my way, I'm investing. It's a good investment like Amerifunds in managing my dad's retirement estate. There's low risk investments like 0.8% with Navy Federal on your savings. It's not a lot. It's less than inflation, but it's pretty safe safe as our government says it is, right? But then there's low risk investments because in retirement, you're always looking for three to four to five to six percent return. Is, is it money well spent? Is it working at a good rate for you? Is it in front of inflation? I'm not here to talk about economics, but I'm just talking about value, investment, not money or my dad's retirement to take care of him to live a, a good life till the end. But I'm talking about the real investment of time. And are we investing it toward what really matters? I invest my dad's resources to ensure he has everything he needs to finish his journey with respect and honor and dignity. But my time that I have the Lord gives me is to be invested in service to the Lord for maximum return on investment in obedience to live for the will of God as as best I can discern it in my life and as best you can discern it in your life. And again, I go back to what Gail Irwin said to me 30, almost 30 years ago. Joy, the will of God isn't where you are. It's who you are. It's you, the character of Christ, wherever you are. doesn't matter if you're in Vermont or Virginia or in California. The will of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory shining through you. The will of God is you becoming more like Jesus and just that's, that's the will of God. It's not so much where you are, it's who you are. So investing the time, no longer living for what's destructive, but living for what's fruitful, good investments, and investing in the kingdom, time 
for the Lord is always a good return investment, or it should be. If we're hearers and doers, right? Like James says. It's a good investment. We spent enough of our past lifetime. I asked someone when I met them for the first time about a week and a half ago through the, our in-laws, the Bradleys, that there's a kid there. And I go, hey, what high school did you go to? And he goes, he goes, I'm just making conversation. You know, he's like, oh, I lost Sally. He's like, what high school do you go to? Carlsbad. How'd that work out? Not so good, because if you don't go to school, you get ex- expelled. And it's like, I look back at the 70s, and I think, what happened? Like, what happened? I'm exhorting a kid this last week, a different kid. Hey, who's behind in high school before senior year? I'm like, let me, let, me, let me give you a preview of the future. Oh, it's hard to get caught up on those classes. No, hard is when your classmates graduate in June of 2019, and you don't. That's hard. When you try to get a job and you realize no one's going to pay you more than minimum wage, that's hard. When you go to junior college at 26 and, and you're seven years behind everybody else, that's hard. That's hard. When you're asking a dad for his daughter's hand in marriage and, you don't, you, and you're behind like this, that's hard. You know, you don't know hard. If you think makeup classes for goofing off your couple years of high school is hard, take it from someone who did. It's a lot harder coming around the corner. We don't, we, we, whatever time we've wasted in the past on drugs and alcohol or wine and women and frivolity and foolishness and the flesh, we got to put it behind us. And if the best testimony is that you didn't do that, right? I mean, the best testimony is that you didn't do that. We've got to keep the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve in the past if we're in Christ. And we got to move away from those things that are the past, that are destructive for the present and the future at all cost. Or as the Bible says, flee youthful lust. Problem with youthful lust is not limited to being youthful, right? You ever notice that? That youthful lust will take you all the way to your 90s. It's like, flee youthful lust. It's not limited to being youthful in every sequence of life. The flesh seeks to destroy you. And again, quoting Pastor Chuck, the flesh is never satisfied. So you can never make an armistice with the flesh. Like, hey, let's just kind of agree on how we manage this stuff. No, the flesh is never satisfied. The flesh wants more territory. Is never satisfied. Can never feed the flesh. So the past has to be the past. The will of God is today. What was past is past. Leave it in the past. Move on from it. That's the way it was when we walked in lewdness, drunkenness. It's got to be behind us. Don't run. If people want to say what they want to say and speak evil of you because you're not like this or that, that's their business. Because they're going to give an account to the Lord who's going to judge the living and the dead. See, our sins are judged when Christ suffered for us on the cross. But their sins are judged in eternity. When they give an account, someone's going to face the wrath. Somebody's going to pay for the wrath of God on sins. Either it's Jesus suffering in the flesh on our behalf, or it's us suffering for all eternity as the consequence. For the wrath of God is revealed against uh, all unrighteousness of ungodly and unrighteous men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1. 
So the gospel, verse 6, was preached to those who are dead. Because we're the walking dead. We are the walking dead. We're dead in the flesh. We're dead. We cannot please God in the flesh. We're dead. We have no capacity to save ourselves. We're under a death sentence. We're separated from God through sin, born in sin, separated from God. We're facing the grave because of sin. Our bodies are breaking down. The whole universe is breaking down because in Adam all sin and all die. And then we step into eternity and face an eternal death. Jesus said, don't fear the one that can kill your body in time, space, and matter. Fear the one who can cast your soul into hell. It's our text this Saturday in Luke. So we're judged according to men in the flesh as Jesus dies in our place, but we live according to God in the spirit. In the flesh and the spirit, they war against each other. But God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the spirit who works in and through us for his good pleasure. It's all there for us. So no matter how bad it's going on around us in our external environment, we still have self-governance and self-decisions to make to yield to the spirit, seek to be spirit-filled, and not give in to the flesh. It's onward, forward, and upward with the life of the spirit. We pick up in verse 7 now. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone asks, excuse me, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers or serves, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here are some practical exhortations. And I like to talk about, you know, enjoying the journey. Or we would say embrace the process of life. You know, life, you just embrace it, the process of what God's doing, how he's working in your life, what he's producing in you in each season, each chapter. And, you know, we want to keep growing and going forward and all that stuff. And we like to enjoy the journey. And I've been looking at these wedding photos the last few days. Uh, Of course, Hannah, our oldest daughter, married Nate Gallagher. And uh, James Gallagher, Nate's brother, one of the twin brothers, got married a few months ago and they just got all the wedding photos back you know it's always exciting when you get the wedding like two months later and oh they're all edited because there's takes a long time to really get them right right that's why they're special and note to those people who are getting married in the future when you invest your money invest it in the photos because they outlast pretty much everything the wedding photos that's what you look at years later but these wedding photos are they're just incredible and there are people the ceremony the groomsmen you know the all the bridesmaids and maid of honor and there's Hannah and all that. I'm like, there's my daughter. Like, I, of course I want to see my daughter in these group wedding photos. They're amazing. And there's photos with everyone dancing at the wedding, like just dancing. And there's, there's one that was posted yesterday where, where uh, it, it was just like this like Southern song, whatever, like almost like a, uh, a hillbilly kind of cowboy two-step type of song. And, and there's Hannah doing a do si with someone in the background. And that was the comment, like, look at Hannah doing the do si And I was like, you know, what a joyful day. What a wonderful, beautiful day of joy and happiness and love in the human experience. We prayed about going back. It, just, it was just too much. We're invited. But, you know, we, I prayed for that wedding day. 
and, and I just enjoyed those photos so much to see them all coming up now. Really good photos of a very, very special day. Wedding number two for the Gallagher boys. There's four of them. Nate was the first one to our daughter, Hannah. And the other three boys are all getting married this year. James was first. Trevor's right about now, right? I think it's like this week or something. And then uh, uh, Shane, the younger, youngest one, who plays the drums here sometimes when he's with his brother. Remember when Nate was here a month ago? And the drummer, yeah, that's Shane. He's getting married in late October, all three sons. But here's my point. Ecclesiastes 3, I quote all the time, there's a time for everything under heaven, and there is a time to dance and rejoice. There's a time to just laugh and love, because life is meant to be lived. And if you're sour, and you're a Pharisee, and all that you marvel at is that Jesus doesn't wash his hands instead of Jesus raises the dead, you are missing the whole journey and its glory. But there is a, a seriousness to life, too. I sat down today with eight teenage boys in, when the fog was there. We couldn't train. With, these, are, these are world champions. I had, got to have the talk. I really wanted to talk with them about some things. And I said, you know, guys, some things are funny and some things aren't. And I said, it's really important that you understand in your generation what's funny and acceptable and what's not. And I asked him, I go, do you, do you know what it means? To, anyone know what it means to be above reproach? I looked at one of the kids, and he's like, no, I've never heard that term. There's another kid whose dad was a youth pastor for Bob Botsford at Horizon in San Diego. Hey, can you tell us what above reproach means? And he goes, yeah. It means like how you carry yourself and conduct yourself, that you keep in mind how that looks to other people and, and who you are, and, and you know, so you're not like accused of things and stuff. This is very good. And, and I was telling these kids, like, life is fun. Life is fun. Like, there's, you, you're in the prime of your life. You're elite athletes, and you're surfing 15-foot surf, and you're world champion. It's unbelievable how you're surfing right now. I mean, life is good. But you can wreck life in one night, in one day. And I, and I go, like, some things are funny, some things aren't. Some things you say can be misconstrued. Some things are appropriate, and some things are inappropriate. And if you guys say the wrong thing at the wrong time, it affects everybody. I talked about the All Blacks rugby team where recently, I mean, it's the pride of the nation of New Zealand. The All Blacks is the most successful sports team globally in the last hundred years. They have the least amount of athletes to pull from and they dominate world rugby. But when you make it to beyond the All Blacks, it is the most elite thing imaginable for your family and for your nation. You don't just represent the All Blacks and the legacy of the, of the New Zealanders and the Kiwis. You represent the prime minister. You represent everybody in New Zealand. And in one day, just one all black made the wrong decision in an airport with a woman. And the whole all blacks, we studied this with the US Olympic Committee, the whole team is affected. The whole nation is affected. And when Peter says here to be sober, the end of all things at its hand, it reminds us that we want to have fun, but don't be stupid with your fun. I reminded the kids today uh, of someone that I know. He was a 17-year-old boy in high school, had never gone out drinking alcohol ever. And he went out with some friends, 
and they were drinking. His parents were going through a hard time. So, you know, that kind of, you know, whatever that teenagers can get, especially when they're stumbled by their parents. So he goes out drinking, gets in a car with people drinking, and right there on the back road to Yucaipa, outside the back end of Redlands, they wrap that car around a telephone pole. And everyone walks away except him. And he walks away paralyzed for the rest of his life at the age of 17 from the first time he ever drank alcohol and got in a car with other people drinking alcohol. I love fun things, and I love to laugh. But there's a sobriety of life, and we know that, don't we? And wisdom in the Lord requires us to understand what's funny, what's not, and when to be reverent and when we can be silly. But we never want to lower our standards where we compromise who we are. I believe this is what Peter's saying here. Be sober for the end of all things at hand. In other words, be sober because you might step into eternity today. Like laugh, have fun, you know, have a great time. Enjoy your journey. But as Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher said, we're one with slippery step from the, the eternity. Or in his famous message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, he said, we're one slippery step from hell apart from Christ. David said, I'm but one, uh, one moment from death. It's one of Pastor Chuck's most famous messages when he used to teach through 1 Samuel. That we're all just one moment from there. So when Peter says, the end of all things at hand, be serious and watchful in your prayers. He's saying, listen, man, have fun. Dance at the weddings. Enjoy things. Laugh when things are funny. But, but think about who you are, where you are, how you're carrying yourself. And think about eternity. You know, we have, there's all these pastors that say things people want to hear. Hey, you know, feel good about this and feel good about that. Then you need to put that with Raul Reese. Hey, you're going to stand before the Lord, maybe today. You know, we need both of those in a sense. Like, I'm not promoting pastors don't believe the gospel, but we do want to enjoy the journey. Again, you know, Jesus hangs out with tax collectors and drunkards, and they're having a great dinner, and they all appreciate Jesus. Jesus hangs out with a Pharisee, and all he can say is, I marvel you didn't wash your hands. Guy raises the dead, walks on water, heals the blind. I, and it's like, you're marveling that I don't wash my hands? Don't you realize I don't defile, I cleanse everything I touch? It's crazy. So there's that balance of enjoying the things that God has for us and life because it all happens fast. And laugh when it's time to laugh. This is Ecclesiastes 3. But man, <laughs> man, when you're in ministry, like you're in heavy moments you're involved in very serious things. And when we came back from winning the world championship in Japan last year, the kids all asked me to wear my medal all the way home. <laughs> it was fun. We are laughing. It was like, God, Joey's still wearing his medal. I'm like, oh, wear it till I get home. I'm going to wear this medal till I walk through my front door. You know, how, you know how many times I'm going to be able to say I'm a world champion? I'm wearing this medal till I walk through my front door. And, and, and we laughed, and the kids all laughed at me. We could laugh about a lot of stuff. But I remind him today, you know, like, I do funerals for kids their age. And I've done funerals this year that are pretty serious and pretty heavy. The end of all things is at hand. And, we, and we're, we're told by Peter, like, to never lose perspective of eternity and the seriousness of perishing souls and Christ suffering in the flesh for our sins. It's a, it's a balance. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a balance to be able to enjoy all those beautiful things. You know, like, like the song we are singing earlier, more beautiful than a, than a daughter on a wedding day. You know, like, like we enjoy all those things. 
But sometimes I just think like, man, is this the day I step into eternity? And it just makes me really think about who I am, how I'm thinking, what I'm doing, and what I'm heading toward. Because once we go into eternity, we're not coming back. We don't get to eternity like, oh, no. <laughs> hey, can I, can I redo that last week? Or can No, I mean, that's it. And that's what Peter's saying here. Eternity gives us this perspective that we can enjoy life and time, space, and matter, but we don't lose perspective on the reality of life. So because we need to be serious and watchful, we love. We're called to love. You can never go wrong loving. Love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, you might not be the sharpest tool in the shed, but if you learn to love everybody, God's got your back. He's like the left tackle in football. I got your back, QB, because the quarterback, the left tackle, covers the blind side. Man, love covers a multitude of sins. So if you forgive and you're gracious and you're merciful and you let it go and you don't have to vindicate yourself and justify yourself, the love you're giving is covering your back. It's your, it covers your blind side. Love covers a multitude of sins. So even your shortcomings are like, oh my goodness, but if you're loving people, man, that's what I learned from Pastor Chuck was Grace. If you're going to err in life, err on the side of grace, because that's love. And God honors grace, and he honors love. Do not err on the side of wrath and vindication and self-righteousness and, and judgment and getting even. and mal- No. Love covers a multitude of sins. You talk about sowing good things that benefit you, the seed that you're planting If the seed is love and you're planting that seed, that's the fruit that's going to come from your life and guard your life and feed your life. Love covers a multitude of sins. So in this journey, we we have focus and we enjoy it and we have sobriety about how we see things and we don't lose perspective in any situation. We laugh when it's time to laugh. We embrace when it's time to embrace. We refrain from it's time to refrain from embracing. Time to be born and time to die. And we understand these things. And we know as we're going through it, the legacy of love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable. Yeah, let's be friendly. You know, <laughs> And even when it's people that are difficult, without grumbling, hey, hey, you ever have your wife go, could you just be nice? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, even, you know, like, just, just, just be nice, man. Lighten up. <sighs> Exhale. Be hospitable. Make friends. Not enemies. Right? Like, just be hospitable. The world's filled with wrathful people. Be a friendly person. It's a good seed. For the one who, who would have friends must be friendly. Yeah. It's God's universe. It's the way he's designed it. You got a good gift? Serve others with it. God gives you a gift. It's not for you. It's to benefit others. So if you're called, if you have a gift to minister, well, you, we all got a gift in the Lord. We know that. The Bible tells us that. Spiritual gifts. But we're as good stewards, we're going to serve others. If God gives you a gift, it's like, oh, this is all mine. It's like, no, it's to minister to others. Whatever he's given you, if you're merciful, you have the gift of hospitality, you got the gift of administrations, you got teaching gifts, prophetic gifts, you're a prophetess, you're a prophet, whatever. Like, whatever gifts you've got, they're for others. And that's the journey, others. Because when the, end's at, at, when the end comes... On the other side, it's others. It's people. And if we speak, we speak the things of the Lord. We speak the things of the Lord. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But if we speak and our speech is seasoned with salt and grace, as we're told to in the New Testament, it's a good thing, man. Speak life. 
I, I'll, I'll end with this. When I was with the U.S. surf team today in our mini camp training for the world championships, I said, uh, does anyone know the word for a building in Spanish? No, no, no. It's edificio, like a building. Like, oh, one, one guy goes, casa? <laughs> no, that's house, you know. A building is edificio. It's un grande, uh, un uh, edificio grande, you know, in uh, Ciudad de uh, Santiago. It's a, it's, a big, it's a big building in the city of Santiago, right? Okay. And so edificio, like, oh, like, I thought this was a surf team. But they all know it's like, it's, it's life. So edificio, we have an English word that sounds like it. You know what that word is? It's edify, to build up. So we want to say things that build people up. We want to speak life. We want to be careful that we're not saying things that tear people down. So just like they're building a building in downtown Santiago or, you know, Mexico City or whatever, they're building up. It's an, edif- it's an edificio, to build the building to build, right? So we're going to build each other up. We're going to speak words of life. And see, we're told here, speak the oracles of God. And when we speak God's word, we're building up. We're speaking life. We're speaking life. When we speak biblical truths at work, whether people know it or not, we're speaking life. We're speaking life into them. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's just speaking life. That's the oracles of the Lord. And God gives us those opportunities. And we do it. It says that, that in all things, God may be glorified in your life and through your life for his son, Jesus Christ. That all that he's given us, with the end being close, we're all just one step from eternity, it is that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ's son in us to whom belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. So the, will of, the purpose of our life is to wake up and fulfill God's will in our life with the future and the spirit, not the past of the flesh that was judged on the cross when Jesus went to the cross, when we were dead. And it's to live this new life, to seek the will of God in our life, and not the past, but the future in the spirit, and to just know that the end is right around the corner for each one of us, And we're going forward in love, hospitality, serving others, and speaking life. No matter what's going on around us. If the legacy of your life, wherever you work, wherever you live, whatever you do, if the legacy of your life is that you've loved, and you've been friendly, and you've served others, and you've spoken life, let me tell you something. That's a funeral that looks good on this side of time, space, and matter for you. I'll be very pleased to do your memorial service. I will. And you'll be very pleased to be in the presence of the Lord or we're stuck back here finishing up the business entrusted to us. That's what Peter's saying here. It's not about how you're suffering. He suffered for us. It's about how you're living in the midst of suffering and joy and whatever God brings you. This is life. Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight in this 1 Peter chapter 4.